From New York, this is Democracy Now! My lords and members of the House of Commons, we gather today in remembrance of the remarkable span of the Queen's dedicated service to her nations and peoples. As King Charles III addresses the British Parliament, we'll look at the legacy of British colonialism in the Caribbean and growing calls for reparations. We'll speak to Muta Baruka, the renowned dub poet in Jamaica, as well as Dobrina Mar, chair of the Antigua and Barbuda Reparations Commission. And we talk to former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis about the energy war between Russia and the West as Russia cuts off gas supplies to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Varoufakis is pushing a controversial proposal. End sanctions on Russian energy. The only people who benefit from the sanctions on Russian gas and oil are the Russian oligarchs and the European oligarchs. Plus, as tension rises between the United States and China, we'll look at how U.S. militarism is transforming the U.S. territory of Guam in the Pacific. We'll speak with Juliano Guan, a leading lawyer and writer. His new book, No Country for the Eight Spot Butterflies, is out today. I would like readers to try to sort of imagine, you know, the sort of irreplaceable beauty, you know, that is at stake with regard to the spreading canopy of U.S. militarization, with regard to the U.S. war machine, with regard to what the U.S. military is doing now in my homeland. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's ruled out the prospect of talks to end the war in Ukraine after Ukrainian troops made major gains reclaiming territory seized by Russia after its invasion in February. On Monday, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said the conflict would continue until Russia's goals had all been achieved. Meanwhile, Ukraine's appealing to the U.S. and its allies for more heavy weaponry. President Volodymyr Zelensky Monday urged the Pentagon to speed up deliveries of weapons systems, saying a pair of counteroffensive had broken in a weeks-long stalemate with Russia. Since the beginning of September, our warriors have liberated more than 6,000 square kilometers of Ukrainian territory in the east and south of the country. Our troops are continuing to advance. Later in the show, we'll look at how the war in Ukraine is leading to an energy war in Europe. We'll speak with the former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis. In the Caspian region, a November 2020 ceasefire between Azerbaijan and Armenia has unraveled as fresh fighting erupted over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenia says 49 of its soldiers were killed in clashes along its border with Azerbaijan. Meanwhile, Azerbaijan's foreign ministry accused Armenia of shelling civilian infrastructure in a large-scale provocation. Forty-four days of fighting in 2020 drove thousands of ethnic Armenians from their homes in Nagorno-Karabakh and claimed the lives of 7,000 people. The U.S. Justice Department has subpoenaed more than three dozen former aides of President Trump this week as it steps up its probe into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Officials also seized the phones of Boris Epstein and Mike Roman, two people in Trump's orbit who sought to name alternative slates of electors in the states won by Biden. 
Meanwhile, the Justice Department said Monday it would accept Reagan-nominated federal former judge Raymond Deary as a special master to review hundreds of documents the FBI seized last month when it raided Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Many of the files were marked top secret. Trump's argued the declassif he declassified all the documents before leaving office. The Justice Department says it may still appeal the decision to appoint a special master, which came from U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, who was nominated to the federal bench in 2020 by then-President Trump. Pakistan's government is warning it could take up to six months for floodwaters to recede after record monsoon rains and glacial meltwater has left a third of Pakistan's territory underwater. The flooding uprooted 33 million people, has claimed over 1,400 lives. Public health officials are warning of the growing threat of waterborne diseases like cholera and dengue. On Monday, Pakistan's army raced to shore up flood defenses at a major power station in the southern province of Sindh, which supplies electricity to millions of people. Nearby, a major dust storm uprooted hundreds of tents at a camp for people recently made homeless by the climate disaster. Our village, our town, were all submerged. We came here and were living in tents. Now the tents have blown away and the weather has become so bad. It has started raining. Is there anyone who can help us? Please help us. Public health officials are warning of worsening air quality across much of western North America as fire season heats up amidst a historic drought. In Canada, nearly 200 wildfires are burning across British Columbia. Among those forced to evacuate the flames Monday were 350 workers with the Trans Mountain Oil Pipeline Expansion Project. A thick pall of smoke has settled over the city of Vancouver, which had the worst air quality in the world Monday. Meanwhile, Seattle is experiencing some of its worst air pollution in years. In Northern California, fire crews are battling the Mosquito Fire, which has burned nearly 65 square miles, threatening thousands of homes east of Sacramento. In Southern California, rescue crews pulled several trapped drivers from their vehicles Monday after the remnants of a rare post-tropical cyclone moved into the region, triggering flash flooding and mudslides. King Charles III is flying to Belfast, Northern Ireland today as mourners continue to gather at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh when the body of Queen Elizabeth's coffin lies in rest. During the Queen's reign, more than 3,600 people died over three decades in Northern Ireland in fighting between the Irish Republican Army and forces backed by Britain. In 1979, an IRA bombing killed Lord Louis Mountbatten, the Queen's second cousin. In 2012, the Queen famously showed hands with former IRA leader and Sinn Féin politician Martin McGuinness in Belfast. Last week, Sinn Féin leader Michelle O'Neill paid tribute to the Queen. There's no doubt that she leaves a legacy of someone who reached out the hand of friendship, someone who advanced peace and reconciliation, someone who sought to build relations between those of an Irish and those of a British identity. And I think that was sterling work and something that I think that she'd be very much remembered for here on this island. Meanwhile, a 22-year-old man in Edinburgh was arrested Monday for heckling Prince Andrew over his ties to the late convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The protester was arrested after calling out, Andrew, you're a sick old man. He was later filmed in handcuffs, stating, quote, powerful men shouldn't be allowed to commit sexual crimes and get away with it. 
A new United Nations report finds nearly one in every 150 people on Earth are trapped in situations of modern slavery on any given day, either compelled to work against their will or in a marriage that they were forced into. The director general of the International Labor Organization, Guy Ryder, announced the findings Monday. That's an extraordinary figure in this day and age that there are, you know, 27.6 million people compelled to work. Uh, and the even worse news is this represents an increase over our previous estimates, which were published in 2017, an increase of 2.7 million. The ILO says a further 22 million people around the globe are in forced marriages. The report notes, quote, entrapment in forced labor can last years, while in most cases forced marriage is a life sentence, unquote. Back in the United States, 15,000 nurses in Minnesota have launched a three-day strike demanding wage increases, better patient care, and relief from staffing shortages. The Minnesota Nurses Association says it's the largest private sector nurses' strike in U.S. history. Meanwhile, some 2,000 therapists, psychologists, social workers, and counselors at Kaiser Permanente Clinics in California and Hawaii have entered the second month of a strike demanding better care for mental health patients. In more labor news, U.S. freight railroads have reduced service and Amtrak canceled trips on three long-distance routes as more than 110,000 rail workers threatened to go on strike this week to protest deteriorating working conditions. So far, 10 of 12 unions representing both freight and passenger rail workers have agreed to new contracts, but unions representing some 60,000 engineers and conductors remain in impasse, and other workers have pledged to join if they begin a strike currently scheduled for 12.01 a.m. Friday. Workers want paid sick leave and say they're being pushed to work ruling schedules that their safety and that of the public. In Alabama, a black pastor who was arrested while watering his neighbor's flowers while they were away has filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Childersburg and the police officers involved in his arrest. Michael Jennings is the longtime pastor at Vision of Abundant Life Church in a nearby town. He's also a former police officer. His arrest took place in May, but police body cam footage was only recently released. Do you live here? No, I don't live here. Okay. Uh, they're saying that this vehicle is not supposed to be here and you're not supposed to be Who's here. Who's saying that? They called about it. I don't know who I, called. I'm supposed to be here. I'm Pastor Jennings. I live across the street. You're Pastor Jennings? Yes. I'm looking out for their house while they're gone. Okay. Uh, why didn't they fly? Okay. Well, that's cool. Do you have, like, ID? And I don't all? know, man. I'm not going to give you no ID. Why not? I ain't did nothing wrong. And did well, you look, listen, listen, I'm not saying do nothing wrong. Stop, listen. There's a suspicious look, person. Look. Police later handcuffed Pastor Jennings and arrested him on charges of obstructing government operations. And the pioneering French film director Jean-Luc Godard has died at the age of 91. His 1960 debut film, Breathless, helped define the French New Wave movement, which revolutionized cinema. Godard once said, quote, a film consists of a beginning, a middle, and an end though not necessarily in that order. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, as King Charles III 
addresses the British Parliament for the first time as monarch. We begin today's show looking at the legacy of British colonialism in the Caribbean, where there are growing calls for reparations. The Caribbean at one point formed the heart of England's first colonial empire in North America. Many of the more than two and a half million enslaved Africans taken to the British Caribbean were worked to death. The string of island nations includes Jamaica, Barbados, the Bahamas, Antigua and Barbuda, and Trinidad and Tobago, among many others now in the British Commonwealth. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the prime minister of the twin island nation Antigua and Barbuda said voters may soon decide whether to leave the Commonwealth and become a republic. Prime Minister Gaston Brown spoke to ITV News after he confirmed Charles III as king and head of state. This is not an act of hostility or any difference between Antigua and Barbuda and the monarchy, but it is uh, the final step, as I said before, to complete um, that circle of independence um, to ensure that we are truly a sovereign uh, nation. What sort of time frame would you think on a referendum then? So I'd say within the next um, probably three years. This comes after Barbados voted last year to break from its colonial past and become a republic. Meanwhile, in Jamaica, the ruling Labour Party says it also plans to hold a referendum on becoming a republic. For more, we're joined in Kingston, Jamaica, by the renowned Jamaican dub poet Muta Baruka, who's also a musician, radio show host as well. And in St. John's, Antigua, Dobreen Omar is with us, the chairperson of the Antigua and Barbuda Reparations Commission, also an ambassador at large of Antigua. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Dobreen Omar, let's begin with you. Uh, with the death of the Queen, first your response and then what you're calling for for your country. Well, um, it's good to be here. Let me say thanks for having me. Um, in terms of my response, I will be I, I will be very measured here. Uh, I will recognize that we are talking about death. We are talking about the loss of human life, and that the Queen would have had family, etc. But I'm under no obligation, I think, to 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 be mourning her death, um, and that is simply because of I, I think my understanding of history, my understanding of the relationships of the British monarchy to African people and Asian people, but to African people certainly on the continent and here in the Caribbean. Um, and so that my, my response is, is perhaps to, to recognize um, the role that the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, um, has played, how she has managed to cloak um, the historical brutality of empire in this in 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 in, in this veneer of, of grandeur and and pomp and pageantry, I guess, um, graciousness. But I think that at this point in time, we need to examine that history a lot more closely. And speaking of that history, could you, uh, for those people who are not aware, especially of the roles of King Charles I and King Charles II uh, uh, in the Caribbean, uh, and especially uh, towards your country, could you talk about that? Well, um, if we look at the role of, of, of a monarchy, um, so we are going back now, mid-17th um, century, 1600s, um, 
King Charles I was, was perhaps the monarch, I think, that opened the trade um, between uh, Britain and, 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 and Africa. That was originally gold, um, minerals, etc., that opened that trade up to human trafficking, to the enslavement, to the, the movement of enslaved Africans. King Charles II, who followed him, actually was responsible, along with his then cousin, who later became James I, totally responsible for and uh, responsible and ownership of the Royal African Company that moved more Africans off of the continent into the Americas than any other company um, in, in, in history. So what we are talking about here is the involvement, the involvement of British monarchy in the ownership and the operation of the of the um, transatlantic, no. I prefer to call it, of the European slave trade, the movement of Africans here into the Caribbean. And so we now see this movement, um, and even before um, Charles I, we, we, we can be addressing um, Elizabeth I, and we see this recurrence, of course, in, 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 in the names that, that we're talking about. And so we now supposedly should be mourning the death of Elizabeth II, and um, and welcoming a Charles III. But we know them. We know these Charleses and we know these Elizabeths. So, so there is there, there's virtually no mourning for me on, 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 uh, at, at this moment. I'd also like to bring in uh, Mutsu Baruka, the renowned Jamaican poet, musician. Uh, your response to the death of Queen Elizabeth and also of the British Empire's relationship to Jamaica. Good morning. Um, I am totally agree in, in agreement with the, the first speaker. And I don't even want to go back into slavery because a lot of people claim that Queen Elizabeth was not responsible for what her ancestors did. She herself said that slavery was legal at the time, so she don't really recognize what we in the Caribbean is talking about. Now, we have to realize in 1952, that was when she, she ascended the throne of England. And if you check the history between 1952 and now, you will see that even though slavery was abolished, but they, what we call it, redefined slavery and call it colonialism. And colonialism in this part of the world was represented by the throne of England. So we're not really talking now about an individual person. We're talking about a, a corporation, an institution, which is called the monarchy of England, that has totally devastated a lot of the progress we could have made if it wasn't for this what we call colonialism interpreted to us as slavery still. Now, we have to remember, in her time, there was the Mama uprising, which is a very interesting case because she was actually named Queen of England when she was in, 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 in Kenya. And the, the cruel and wicked things that the British army did 
to the African people there cannot be seen as just, okay, that is just something. And she had never, never granted any sympathy or say anything that would say, well, you know, she have a kind of art to what was taking place. We look in South Africa during the apartheid system. The British is part of that wicked apartheid regime that devastated and killed thousands of Africans who was fighting for right to be a person in South Africa. And it was not, it was recently, even during the time of Mandela and Win Mandela, that we was told that they were still on the list of terrorist groups. And even though England and this queen was ruling at that time, there was no effort to find out what is it they can do to help to alleviate the problems that confront African people in this part of the world. Now we come to the Caribbean in this time. The Caribbean has been devastated. We know in history, one of the richest plantation owners, king owners, was a man by the name of William Beckford. William Beckford got his riches and became one of the richest men in England in, in that time. And up to this day, when we recognize how much people died because of the institutionalized slavery that they call colonialism, up to this day, the, the, the movement of a people, in the, especially in Jamaica now, where our constitution was given to us by England through the hands of the so-called um, Bustamante and, Man, and, and Norman Manley, who was recognized during that time in 1962 when Jamaica was supposed to be getting independent. They went to England and they got a constitution that is now part and parcel of what Jamaicans are supposed to live by. And when we look at that constitution, it does not include ownership of land in Jamaica by the people. If you go into the courts of Jamaica, it says the Crown versus Tom Stroke or the Crown versus John Tom. That is what we have to face right now. Now, when you recognize that Jamaica is supposed to be an independent city, it's country, most Jamaicans say Jamaica is independent. That even though people say it's like a it's, it's not rich, it's not really governing the country. But the head of state, the head of state is the governor general um, representing the Queen of England in an independent country. How the hell that, can, that is possible? That you have an independent country that is the, 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 the first lady is the governor general wife, not the, not the, 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 the prime minister's wife. And they set and designed the constitution that way. And these so-called, we call them bossy slaves, jacket and tie slaves, that they continue to uphold and maintain that regime that has committed so much atrocities and crimes in this century, in this time. They have been committing it and still committing it. And we don't see why we should now sit down and say 12 day morning. That to show how backward and how what we call the Stockholm syndrome has grabbed our leaders in the Caribbean. That here's a here's a family 
that represent criminal activities of your ancestors. And now you start to love them. How, how is that possible? How is that possible that we who know the history is keep repeating the history? We know what is taking place in, in this democratic, so-called democratic country that is still honoring the most gruesome and cruel monarchy that ever exists. And we know of it. How can we now sit and say, we well, have 12 days of mourning. 12 days of mourning for, for, for what? But we're mourning that far. Why we never, we're not mourning for the thousands and millions of people that died across the Atlantic Ocean. We're not mourning for all the, 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 the warriors of our time. There's no day for Taki. There's no day for Nani. All of these people who died because they stand up and struggle to get out of the class of British colonialism. Mutabur we now sit and say, we must mourn. I am not one of them who is mourning, and I can talk for a lot of Rastafari, Virgin and Sitchin. We don't see it as a mourning time. Muta Baruka, I um, wanted to ask your response to Charles at the time, Prince Charles, just a few weeks ago, praising the contribution of Jamaicans to British life as immeasurable in a message commemorating Jamaica's 60 years of independence from the U.K. Um, now you have Jamaica also talking, like Antigua and Barbuda, of a referendum um, on complete independence, on becoming a republic. Uh, what would—what do you think the outcome of that will be, and what would reparations and an apology look like to you, be adequate right. for you? By the right, way, first, it's an honor to speak with you again after so many years having years, talked to you in Brooklyn. Yes, yes. All right. What he's saying is what we expect him to say. Now, actions speak louder than words. And if he is here now to do certain things, he must understand how we feel as African people in this part of the world and what his family and ancestors did. So to address the situation, it's not just to say why he feel bad about what is happening. That is not apologizing. Because he did that already. He came to the Caribbean and said, why well, I feel bad about what, what was happening. We need somebody saying, look here, we see what happened, and we was responsible for it, and we're sorry, and we're going to make amends. And the amends come with what we call it, what them call um, getting something going between the, the governments of the different countries to facilitate reparations and repatriation. Because we're not taking that out for those who desire to go back to Africa. Because we came to Jamaica not by free will, but by force. Nobody asked to come to, to the Caribbean. None of these Africans, at least my ancestors, never asked to come here. So the Rastafari community is crying out, saying, reparation, repatriation. Meaning that those who desire us of going back to Africa must be able to do this without the argument about commonwealth of nations, and that is really an hindrance. There is no moving away from the queen and the monarchy if the countries that claim 
getting rid of the monarch is one. But if you still in the Commonwealth of Nations, that still bind you and keep you to the same colonial system that you are trying to break free from. There's no getting rid of the queen or getting rid of the king, and you're still into the Commonwealth. We as Jamaicans, there's a lot of grandfathers and who's living today who fought in the Royal Air Force during the World War II and who get, went to England to help build up England. And what we hear now, first of all, Jamaicans have to have a visa to go to the so-called motherland. Jamaicans is not allowed to stay there at a certain length of time. And now we have the Windrush people who just recently, we see that they're trying to send back people who was in England for 60 years and have children and them house and everything. They're sending them back to Jamaica. That is one of the most racist things that I have ever seen in my lifetime. Where you uh, go to uh, build a but, country. Mutabaruka, yes. I'd like to bring in uh, on this issue of uh, reparations, Dobrino Marde also. To t if you could uh, tell us in the letter that your, your commission submitted to the royal family, what were some of the demands and how do you see reparations? Well, certainly. The letter that we wrote, well, it would have been our second letter addressed to British monarchs. Um, earlier, I think maybe about a year or two before, Prince Harry was here. Um, and certainly this year, this year or last year, I mean, I'm getting lost within this COVID mess. Um, the other brother was was also here, who is now, I, I, I guess, um, destined to be the next king of England. And our letter simply said to them that we were very tired um, and, and, and rather insulted by their approach of telling us things that we already knew, that we knew that slavery was horrible. They didn't have to tell us that that we knew who that genocide was committed. They didn't have to tell us that. And our letter simply said to them, well, well, please, do, do, do not come here and insult us further by saying things that um, the Tony Blairs have already said, that your Minister of Foreign Affairs had come and addressed the parliament in, in, in Jamaica and, 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 and looked at us as Caribbean people, as descendants of enslaved people, to tell us that we should forget it and just move on, that just let's forget this, uh, move on. And that is essentially what we said um, in, in our letter. Now, in response to your <coughs> the other part of your question of what does this, um, what does reparations look like for us? What does this moment mean to us in the reparations struggle? I think certainly that we're asking Britain to reassess its role in the intentional on the development of Africa and, and, and this Caribbean. Asking Britain to reassess its role in the genocide, in the plunder, in the violence that it exerted um, on African people on the continent and here in the Caribbean. And that in reassessing this role, that it must understand clearly that the morality of the situation, the ethics of the situation calls for repair. And in that repair, we, we essentially are talking reparations, that you have committed crimes against humanity, and that 
there is a moral and an ethical demand that you acknowledge these crimes and you do your best in the best way you can to make whole these, the, the, the holes that you have, have, have really um, left in, in, in the history and in the lives of African people. I'm a member of the CARICOM Reparations Commission as chairperson of the Antigua and Barbuda Reparations Commission. And that commission has issued a 10-point plan that defines um, for the international community, defines for us here in the Caribbean, how we see reparations. The plan that, that we have issued is a development plan. It's in contrast, let's say, to the legacy um, reparation plans that are being developed elsewhere in the diaspora where individuals are identified as the recipient of reparations. Um, the CARICOM Reparations Plan talks of development um, in the first instance, it identifies those areas in our development across this region where the hurt of enslavement and genocide continues to exist and continues to impact on the lives of Caribbean people today. And we are saying that in that development plan that we are inviting inviting yeah, is the word that I, I think we have to use at this point in time, um, Europe to sit at the table with us and to discuss this development plan addressing areas in education, in health care. And yeah. as Mutabarak has just said, we include in that this whole question of repatriation of those persons who want to go back to the continent. Um, we, we, are talking we have 15 yes. seconds. Yeah, we're talking um, psychological, we're talking debt, we're talking debt, um, debt, 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 debt relief, um, a number of issues within that 10-point plan. Well, we will link to that 10-point plan at democracynow.org. Dobrine Omard, chair of the Antigua and Barbuda Reparations Commission and ambassador-at-large of Antigua, and Muta Baruka, renowned Jamaican dub poet. He was speaking to us from Kingston. Um, Dobrine Omard was speaking to us from St. John's. Coming up, former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis on the growing energy war between Russia and the West in 30 seconds. We interrupt this music to bring you a special news bulletin. South African troops have just passed their borders into Angolan territory. It has been reported that several Angolans have been killed and wounded. Meanwhile, Them invade Angola again, my friend. Invade Angola again. Them invade Angola again, my friend. Angola Invasion by our guest Muta Baruka from his 1983 album Check It. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As Ukraine continues to seize more Russian-occupied land in its largest counteroffensive to date, we turn now to look at how the war in Ukraine is leading to an energy war in Europe. Last week, Russia announced it would not resume sending natural gas to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline until the West lifts sanctions imposed after Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Prior to the war, Russia 
Russia supplied Europe with 40 percent of its natural gas. Now European nations are scrambling to find ways to cope with gas shortages, as well as soaring energy prices. They're growing fears the energy crisis could lead to rolling blackouts and the shuttering of some industries during the winter. We go now to Athens, Greece, to Yanis Varoufakis, member of the Greek parliament, former finance minister of Greece. His latest piece for Project Syndicate is headlined, Time to blow up electricity markets. Yanis, welcome back to Democracy Now! What do you mean? We shouldn't have electricity markets. It's uh, an abomination. Think about it, Amy. Uh, there can't be an electricity market to the extent that in your apartment, in your studio, there is one single wire coming out of the wall carrying electricity. There can't be a market. It's a natural monopoly. Uh, the only way we could have had a market would be if we had 50 different wires, each belonging to a different company, <laughs> and we could choose which one we connect our appliances to. Uh, but, of course, that would be completely crazy because we would have 50 grids running through every suburb, through every city, through the land. That would be so inefficient. It would be ridiculous. So what we have is not really markets. We have the state that steps in and pretends that there is a market, simulates a market, creating a kind of semblance of competition between producers of electricity and a semblance of competition between supposedly retailers of electricity, people who are companies that buy electricity wholesale and then sell it to you individually. But all that is a state creation. It's, you know, a libertarian's <laughs> right-wingers nightmare, if you want. It's a market, it's a, a fake market created by the state. And the impact of this being a fake market emerges during periods of stress, like in the 1970s when we had the oil crisis and then, of course, that translated into electricity price crisis. And now with what is happening with supply chain interruptions and the war in Ukraine. The thing to remember is that electricity prices, the prices that people in New York and Los Angeles, here in Athens, everywhere, the prices we pay have risen by a much greater factor than the cost of producing electricity. So you've got the oligarchs that are dominating this state market, that pseudo market, that fake market, benefiting tremendously out of this crisis. And, and Giannis, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, the, uh, Europe made a decision clearly following the collapse of the of the Soviet Union that it would uh, integrate its economy, especially when it came to energy with Russia. And now, of course, is being forced rapidly uh, to move for other sources of uh, gas and oil. Uh, could you uh, talk about the this decision, uh, the original decision, and now the change, and what the impact of Europe's strategic uh, decisions are having on the rest of the world? Actually, if you look at it historically, the decision uh, goes back to the early 70s. It was back in the early 70s that West Germany and the Soviet Union started this arrangement of providing cheap gas to the German industrial machine um, in exchange for detente, in exchange for cash that the Soviet Union was collecting. Uh, the tragedy is that since the 
you know, Lehman Brothers collapse, Wall Street uh, implosion in 2008, which very quickly brought down the whole of the banking sector in Europe and precipitated a major economic and social crisis in Europe, with Greece being, of course, the worst hit place. But Germany, France, Italy, Spain, every, Ireland, Portugal, we all suffered as a result. During that period, we didn't invest in energy, in renewables. We had zero investment, in, almost zero investment in the renewables that we needed in order to save the planet on the one hand and to decouple from the Putin regime in Russia. And it's only now, years and years later, that the chickens are coming home to roost across Europe. And the impact on the global south of, uh, of Europe buying up uh, gas and oil wherever it can find it? Well, it's awful, isn't it? We are exporting poverty. Uh, in 2008, 2009, 2010, with the crisis of the German and the French banks initially, and then the public debt crisis, Europe exported deflation to the rest of the world. We exported unemployment to the rest of the world. Now we are exporting poverty, energy poverty, which translates then into food poverty. Because as we speak, there is a scramble by Germany, by France, by Italy, even by little Greece, to buy all the gas that we can, you know, in liquefied form from Norway, from Qatar, from Algeria, from wherever they are selling it. And of course, rich, rich Europe, rich European countries, uh, relatively rich, they can outbid the whole of the African continent, uh, most of Asia, Latin America in those markets. So they are pushing prices up for those countries, the developing world, um, while at the same time food shortages are hitting those countries. So, you know, yet again, Europe is exporting misery to the rest of the world. We've been doing this for a thousand years. It's not new, right? Colonialism began from these shores. Yanis, if you could talk about your call for an end to Russian sanctions and your response to the latest kind of Ukrainian blitz taking back city after town, uh, Russia, though, saying they would not negotiate at this point? Well, it's a tragedy that people are not negotiating when there's a war, wherever that war happens. But I have to say that, uh, Amy, whenever an invaded country manages to repel the invader, I rejoice. I rejoice now that um, the Russian troops are being pushed back. I would rejoice if uh, Palestinians manage to claim back their stolen land. I would rejoice everywhere and anywhere. <laughs> uh, invaded peoples claim back their homes, their cities, their villages, their fields, their olive trees, whatever. Um, having said that, we have a complete tragedy here in Europe with Ukraine, because I cannot see this war ending. There can be no final victory either for Putin or for Ukraine. Um, there is very little doubt that um, Putin is, as we speak, is planning another murderous uh, escapade in different parts of Ukraine. Um, we are in for a very long war, uh, the victims of, 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 of which are going to multiply. 
and um, you know, which will spread far and wide. As we said, uh, there will be people dying of hunger in Africa, in Latin America. We are going to have an inflammation of the new Cold War between the United States and Europe on the one hand and uh, China and Russia on the other hand with African nations, Asian nations uh, pulling their hair out because they they're clearly they don't like Putin. They don't like what Putin is doing. But at the same time, they refuse to accept that the United States of America, the government of the United States of America or the Europeans can uh, impose sanctions on anyone they don't like. Uh, because they know that uh, these sanctions uh, have never been either efficient or in the interests of uh, the majority of people in the majority of countries. And, and Giannis, I'm wondering, uh, the, the, the big story in the corporate and commercial media the past few days, obviously, has been the death of, of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, your perspective uh, from uh, uh, as, a, uh, as a, a leftist political leader from Greece uh, about all the fixation uh, in much of the Western world over uh, monarchs and uh, obviously the royal family of Britain? I try to be very careful. Whenever somebody dies, independently of my opinion of the deceased, to respect uh, the people who are in grief. And therefore, I will be very restrained in my response. Let me, however, give you a response. My grief is for civil liberties, for freedom of expression. Um, An acquaintance of mine the other day, I had a very interesting experience outside the House of Commons, the Parliament of the United Kingdom in London, you know, next to Big Ben or under the Big Ben. Uh, there was an arrest recently of a demonstrator who had the audacity to hold a placard up. Not actually, it wasn't even a placard, it was a piece of paper in which he had scribbled, um, not my king, as um, Charles was passing by. This person was arrested. My acquaintance, a couple of days later, went to the same spot and had a blank piece of paper and a pen. (laughs) Blank piece of paper and a pen. And the police came along and they were about to jump on him. And he said to them, so if I write here on this piece of paper, not my king, will you arrest me? And they said yes. So they were waiting. Now, that to me is the death of democracy. And since your wonderful channel is called Democracy Now, I think it is something that we should all be very, very aware of. Yanis Varoufakis, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Member of the Greek Parliament, former finance minister of Greece, we'll link to your latest piece in Project Syndicate, Time to Blow Up Electricity Markets. Next up, Julian Aguan leading lawyer and writer from Guam. His new book, No Country for the Eight-Spot Butterfly, is out today. Back in 30 seconds.
Mother Nature's Son by the great jazz pianist Ramsey Lewis, who's died at the age of 87. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As tension rises between the United States and China, we look at how U.S. militarism in Guam, the westernmost territory of the United States. During World War II, Guam was a key naval and air force base for the United States in the Pacific, the U.S. now expanding its military operations in Guam. The Pentagon's 2023 budget calls for nearly $900 million to build a new missile defense system on Guam. The U.S. is also moving ahead with plans to relocate 5,000 Marines to Guam and build a new machine gun range near a wildlife refuge. We're joined now by Julia Nagun, a leading Chamorro writer and human rights lawyer from Guam. He is the founder of the law firm Blue Ocean Law and a 2022 Pulitzer Prize finalist for commentary, author of several books, including his latest, released today. He has now just arrived in New York, No Country for the Eight Spot Butterflies. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Julian. Um, we've been talking about the British Empire a lot, a lot with the death of the um, Queen, but you write about the American Empire. Um, it has more than 800 military bases around the world. Guam is a major site. Talk about your—talk about Guam's significance, your homeland. Sure. Um, Guam is the ancestor homeland of my people, the indigenous Chamorro people, who have been there and have called that land home for over 3,500 years. We um, are a matrilineal society. We, we value—we have a set of sort of values that are our constitutive values, chief among them reciprocity. Um, we are— directly in the line of fire. We are definitely a frontline community when it comes to the spreading canopy of U.S. militarization. Um, as I speak, my people are bracing ourselves for a round of militarization that is nothing less than cataclysmic. Um, and I say that in um, an intentionally existential way. Um, as you know, Guam is in the crosshairs. Um, um, Sort of whenever the war games are afoot um, between the U.S., uh, the U.S. is greatly expanding its military footprint. Um, this springs from a 2005 agreement with the U.S., uh, between the U.S. government and the government of Japan to transfer thousands of U.S. Marines from Okinawa, which shoulders a disproportionate amount of U.S. military presence um, in its own right. And those Marines are now um, coming to Guam. And as part of that Marine relocation, um, the U.S. military is currently expanding its footprint in Guam. It is expanding its base. It has created a brand-new Marine Corps base, and it is also constructing a live fire training range complex, and that complex consists of five different machine—five uh, different ranges, live fire training ranges, the largest and most important of which is a 59-acre multipurpose machine gun range. And that is the range that I talk about in this book, because it directly imperils a host of uh, our other-than-human relatives, um, including our endemic eight-spot butterfly. And, Julian, in terms of uh, this ex military expansion, clearly, obviously, geared to the rising tensions between uh, China uh, and the United States, all of this is being done when it comes to Guam without any involvement of the, pe of the people of Guam themselves. Uh, your 
country remains one of only 17 territories that are still considered colonies by the United Nations. Uh, and uh, even the level of self-government, let's say, as some of the other former colonies of the U.S. or the colonies of the U.S., Puerto Rico, the Federation of, uh, of Micronesia have received, Guam still remains in a category by itself. I wonder if you could talk about how the people feel of what is going on, how the United States treats Guam. Thank you so much for that question, Juan. Um, I think that it's critical to sort of uh, face that question head on. Guam is a U.S.-administered, non-self-governing territory whose decolonization process has been thwarted by the U.S. government for 123 years and counting. Um, Guam um, has had a long history of fighting for the fundamental right of self-determination. Um, I, myself, was involved in a decades-long battle um, throughout the federal court system to try to defend the right of the native inhabitants of Guam to express our um, desires with relation with regard to our future political status, our future political relationship with the U.S. government, which has uh, which has failed, and is it sort of like um, right now what we see happening is the harms of 500 years of colonization sort of being exacerbated by a hyper-aggressive, unilateral sort of expansion of the U.S. military. So this is really—Guam um, is really a—Guam is where um, sort of like the legacy of colonial violence is now sort of being um, compounded upon by the sort of the harms of the U.S. government. And I mean that in, in every sense. Um, for example, in August 2017, North Korea was threatening Guam uh, with, uh, with, new, with weapons, uh, intercontinental ballistic weapons that would said to be reached Guam in 14 minutes. Um, in August 2020, um, China launched four missiles into the South China Sea, one of which, um, it's the DF-26, it nicknamed Guam Killer. Um, the U.S. government right now um, claims that it's sort of expanding its military footprint um, in order to sort of bolster up the defense of the nation. But we know better. Uh, you know, with the war games are already foot um, out in out, out out at sea. The operation, several different variations of war games are afoot, including Operation Valiant Shield, which is not unlike RIMPAC, which just concluded in Hawaii. And all of these war games, the, the sort of increased escalation. I mean, we see this at the congressional level with regard to rhetoric about uh, China emerging as the U.S.'s biggest pacing challenge. And we see this on the ground. And what this means on the ground to the people is, you know, loss of land, loss of uh, our preciously singular sort of habitat. Um, for example, the firing range being built now in Guam, um, it, it entails the destruction of over a thousand acres of pristine limestone forests. These forests took millennia to evolve and are impossibly beautiful. And they are directly sort of—they're on the chopping block, you know? Like, uh, many of those acre, acres have already been cleared. Um, cer certain portions of, of the Retidian area, which is an area that is sacred to my people, have been already bulldozed. And so I write about that in the book. I write about how it's bitterly ironic that so many of these— sort of machines that are ripping the like sort of limestone from the forest floor these machines bear the name caterpillar yet it's it's that sort of creatures preciously singular habitat these limestone forests that are being bulldozed you know and i sort of land on this insight in the book i i, I finally get to this and i realize that this is sort of what's happening the the us is a country that prefers routinely power over strength 
and living over letting live. And that a country like that, perhaps, is no country for eight-spot butterflies. I was wondering, Julian, if you could read a poem from your book. Um, sure. Um, I can read um, a poem that I wrote on climate change. Um, and I wrote this poem shortly after one of the cops. Uh, let me just find it. Sorry. And as you talk, I should say people should tune into our coverage of the U.N. COP, the U.N. Mm -hmm. Climate Summit that will be taking place in November in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Julian, go ahead. Thank you. We have no need for scientists to tell us things we already know, like the sea is rising and the water is getting warm. The inundated need no instruction in inundation. We have eyes of our own, and besides, we are busy scraping barnacles off our grandfather's graves and other headstones drowned at high tide. We know how critical it is our coral reefs stay healthy and our mangrove forests dense. We will defend them to the end, not because some study shows they provide protection from erosion or shelter from storms, but because our reefs are adoring aunts feeding other people's children and our mangroves mothers in their own right. As you come to the mainland United States, your final message, Julian, as you, your book comes out today, No Country for Eight-Spot Butterflies. I think that we have to be really honest about sort of this, this, the U.S. war machine and that and, and just like climate change, stop using sort of future tense. The crisis is here. You know, it's not only at our doorstep, but it's banging down the door, um, you know, and it is time to end these endless wars. And we should begin in Guam. Mm. Julian Agan, I want to thank you for being with us. Chamorro writer, human rights lawyer from Guam, his new book out today, No Country for the Eight-Spot Butterflies, a lyric essay. And that does it for our broadcast. We want to wish a very happy birthday to our Democracy Now! digital fellow, Zena Brecht Rodriguez. And we want to welcome to the world Noah Gabriel Gottesdiener. Congratulations to our former producer, Laura Gottesdiener, on the birth of your son. I just call him Noah Gaby, baby. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Honey Masood, Mary Conlin. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. Tomorrow on Democracy Now!, we'll talk about British colonialism and Northern Ireland. The king is in Northern Ireland today. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for another edition of Democracy Now! Stay safe.